Well, good evening, saints. King's Harvest Church sends you guys their greetings. I'm delighted to share with you that the Spirit of Christ, that is, the Spirit of Prophecy, has arranged our steps. Can I get an amen from anyone in the room? He's arranged our steps across the one association. He's aiming this entire body to one mission, one standard, and one way. King's Harvest Church is building disciples that are like Gideon's 300, men that will stand firm to the end, no matter the odds and no matter the cost. In fact, through daily discipleship and sacrifice, they're learning to enjoy tribulation and laugh at the 450 prophets of Baal surrounding them. Tonight, with all due deference to any difficulty you're experiencing, devotion problems you're having, or destructive sympathies you're tolerating. We say unequivocally, to hell with it. We are going to fight until we win tonight. We're going to fight until we see holiness abound in this house. We're going to fight until we see marriages made strong. We're going to fight until our brothers in every place, everywhere, have received their full allotment in Christ Jesus. We will put our mind to the mission as one man, one body, and reinforce the revelation God has given us. Let no man or woman in this room take their hand off the plow saying, I'm afraid. I can't. I can't do it. I don't want to do it ever again. Tonight, we put our hands to the plow, and we will be those that stand firm to the end. We're going to start our study by reading a couple scriptures. Can we do that? Can we get into the Word to start our study of the Word? I want to read to you James 1.20-21. through 21. It says, Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Say can. can. Look, the biggest fear that goes around, that the devil tries to work into us, the biggest fear that is creeping inside of our body is that we cannot grow, is that it's not possible, it's not possible to get past this, I can't do it. We need to learn tonight that we can stand on the Word and we can grow. Say we can. We We can. can. We just have to let the Word do its job. We want to say equivocally before we get into our study tonight, we can grow. Don't let the devil tempt you into thinking you can't get past it. We can do it together as we accept the word that is working its way into us. Isaiah 49, 24 through 25. Can plunder be taken from the fierce? Can they be rescued from the fierce? But this is what the Lord says. Yes, captives will be taken from warriors and plunder retreat from the fierce. Saints, our king is pointing us in the direction this evening. We've experienced difficulty. We've experienced our own insecurity and all of those things. And once again, I'm going to say it just to make sure that I'm a little offensive. (laughs) To hell with it on recording. We will not be entertaining those thoughts. We will be agreeing with our Lord and our King that says, Yes, you can do it by my Spirit. Exodus 17, 11 is a favorite passage of this body. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. Uh 
Tonight we're going to learn how to hold up our hands through the battle. Amen. We are going to learn how to hold our heads up high even though things get difficult, even though the fear and insecurity gets real. We are going to win this fight with our hands up reaching toward the throne of God. So with that said, will an anointed man of God raise up his hands and begin to pray for us? Mighty God, Lord, we say thank you, Lord, for bringing us here tonight. Father, we say thank you for the revelation that you have poured out on this body and the one association as a whole, mighty God. Father, thank you for reinforcing that revelation in our hearts, God, that we are able to take a stand, Lord, that we are able to stand shoulder to shoulder and to fight for what you have given us, to fight for the promise, mighty God. Lord, we say we will not back up, let up, or shut up, Lord. Amen. We are taking a stand tonight. We are opening our hearts, our ears, and our eyes, Lord, to what you are saying to this body. Lord, we're asking you that you would uh, move upon us, Lord God, that your spirit would be amongst us, and that we would be aware of it in Jesus' name. Amen. Brother Lintonius, will you help us out and read chapter 26? Then all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king in place of his father Amaziah. He was, he was the one who rebuilt the lot and restored it to Judah after Amaziah rested with his fathers. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 52 years. His mother's name was Jehoiada. She mm. was from Jerusalem. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father Amaziah had done. He sought God during the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. As long as he sought the Lord, God gave him success. He went to war against the Philistines and broke down the walls of Gath, Jabneh, and Ashdod. He then rebuilt towns near Ashdod and elsewhere among the Philistines. God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabs who lived in Gerbel and against the Mayanites. The Ammonites brought tribute to Zion, and his fame spread as far as the border of Egypt because he had become very powerful. Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate, at the valley gate, at the angle of the wall, and he fortified them. He also built towers in the desert and dug many cisterns because he had much livestock in the foothills and in the plains. He had people working, working his fields and vineyards in the hills and in the fertile lands, for he loved the soil. Uzziah had a well-trained army, ready to go out by divisions, according to their numbers, as mustered by Jelio, the secretary, and Masiah, the officer, under the direction of Hananiah, one of the royal officials. The total number of family members, family leaders over the fighting men was 2,600. Under their command was an army of 307,000, men trained for war, a powerful force to support the king against his enemies. Uzziah provided shields, spears, helmets, coats of armor, bows, and sling stones for the entire army. In Jerusalem, he made machines designed by skillful men for use on the towers and on the corner defenses to shoot arrows and hurl large stones. His fame spread far and wide, for he was greatly helped until he became powerful. But, was, but after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Azariah the priest, with 80 other courageous priests of the Lord, followed him in. They confronted him and said, It is not right for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord. That is for the priests, the descendants of Aaron, who have been consecrated to burn incense. Leave the sanctuary, 
where you have been unfaithful, and you will not be honored by the Lord. Wow. Uzziah, who had a censer in his hand, ready to burn incense, became angry. While he was raging at the priest in the pres in the presence, in their presence, before the incense altar in the Lord's temple, leprosy broke out on his forehead. When Azariah the chief priest and all the other priests looked at him, they saw that he had leprosy on his forehead. So they hurried him out. Indeed, he himself was eager to leave because the Lord had afflicted him. King Uzziah had leprosy until the day that he died. He lived in a separate house, leprous, and excluded from the temple of the Lord. Jotham, his son, had charge of the place of the palace and governed the people of the land. The early events of Uzziah's reign from beginning to end are recorded by the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos. Uzziah rested with his fathers and was buried near them in a field for burial that belonged to the kings, for people said he had leprosy, and Jotham, his son, succeeded him as king. Well, my, my. my. Definitely have an interesting chapter this evening. Yeah. Throughout this evening, as a body, as a spiritual attitude, we want to maintain the attitude that we can. Our God is able to strengthen us. He is able to cause us to succeed. And we are not going to allow doubt to creep into the room. Amen. You with me on this? Yes. yes. Let's dive in. Brother Linton, if you would start us out and just read verse 1 and 2 again for us. Then all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king in place of his father Amaziah. He was, he was the one who rebuilt a lot and restored it to Judah after Amaziah rested with his fathers. Eliath is not a city that the majority of us are familiar with. In Hebrew, it's pronounced Elat or Elat. This is a city that is towards the southern border of modern-day Israel. Some of us have been to the city on occasion, and it's a sort of uh, beach town or Las Vegas right on the edge of crystal blue water and coral reefs. It's really pretty. Today, it's a resort town. It's really all that it's used for. Not at other points in time, there were copper mines. There were things that were there that were of importance to an empire. I want to show you our first slide, though, and let you know where this is. See that little blue box down the very edge of the area that's bordered in red? Yeah. Where it's red is population dense with Israel. As you kind of spread outwards, we're getting closer and closer to enemy territory. I have one more slide for you, showing you this general vicinity. So... This area is surrounded by other nations. So we have Put, Mizraim, which is Egypt. We have Joktan, which is Saudi Arabia today. It's kind of a hub. It's a hub for trade, and it's an area where multiple nations are interacting with each other. Uzziah rebuilt Elat for more than just as a resort town. There were other things that he had in mind for it, other uses for it. He rebuilt it because it was Israel's main port of trade. Somebody say main port. Main, main port. See this little channel? This takes us all the way out to the sea. And otherwise, besides the Mediterranean Sea, Israel would be landlocked to major seas and international travel. If you study a lot throughout the scriptures, you're going to find that it was conquered during David's conquest originally. Wow. Then it was built up during Solomon's time. Between Solomon and Uzziah, where we are tonight, it was taken over by the Edomites. And it shifted many times from Israelite control to the control of other people groups and warring factions. It was an area that all the nations around were interested in. 
What Uzziah is doing here is he is restoring Israel's global prominence among the nations, an area of port trade, an area that international travel takes place. He's restoring their prominence. He's bringing Judah back to the position that it had only previously been in during Solomon's days. Look, we're going to dig more into his reign this evening, but the beginning, it seems that we are returning to a kind of golden age in Israel's history, where immediately in the text we're picking up with areas that have long been lost and are of great importance to Judah. We pick up in verse 3 for us, through 5. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 52 years. His mother's name was Jechaliah. She was from Jerusalem. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father Amaziah had done. He sought God during the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. As long as he sought the Lord, God gave him success. You know, Linton, can you say his mother's name one more time? <laughs> I just wanted to hear it. Look, how old was Uzziah when he became king? 16 years old. 16 years old. That's pretty young, isn't it? Yeah. That's pretty staggering when you think about it. You know, he, came, he became king because his daddy got killed. And out of necessity, he became king at just 16 years old. Wow. Man, that's about the age of... Do we have Chris Hall here? There you go. At this young man's age is about the time that Uzziah becomes king over an entire southern kingdom. Can you imagine the responsibility being placed on a young man like Chris Hall? Man, how about Devlin Phillips? Is he here tonight? No, imagine these young men and having to deal with that kind of responsibility. Man, that's a lot different from today's kind of expectation from young men, isn't it? Yeah. You know, we kind of tend to think that they're not really men until they're about 25 and have some experience in life. And even then, they're still adolescent. No, the biblical age of manhood is 13. And these young men were required a lot. Look, we're going to look at one of the greatest national growths in Israel's history. And it started with a 16-year-old. Wow. Man, that ought to challenge most of the men in the room. Yeah. I, I'm almost hitting 30, and I'm not going to make anybody else feel older in the room. I just think that, man, I've wasted a lot of time, and I have a little bit less time to accomplish things. Yeah. Us older men should be able to say, hey, yeah, it's time for me to put some responsibility on my shoulders and get to work. You know what? When we look at the rest of this verse, though, you see some indicators that lead to his success. Judah talked about this being a golden age in Israel's history, and that is true. Some of the indicators I noted was one of them, his mother was from Jerusalem. Yes. Remember we uh, noted last week that Israelite kings whose mother was not from some foreign na nation ended up doing a lot better? Yeah. They ended up being more prosperous? Funny how that works. Man, it's, again, single, single men. It is a good thing to not just look for someone that you share personality traits with or you get along the best. You should be looking for the mother of your children when you're thinking about a wife. The second thing that we noted was that he was instructed by Zechariah in the fear of the Lord. Now, we don't know much about this Zechariah, and quite frankly, we looked at every commentary we can find, and they don't know much either. This is not the Zechariah that got killed, obviously, in the... Last chapters, and this is not the Zechariah the prophet who wrote the book Zechariah, because he came much later. He was instructed, though, by a man 
in a fear in the fear of the Lord. How important is it to be instructed? So, Come on. So important. The next one we noted is that as he sought God, he had success. You know, that ought to be a given in any of our lives. And yet we have to be reminded that to find success, you have to do it seeking the Lord. We have to be reminded that because we forget from time to time and we start seeking anything else like our own emotions or whoever the heck else we want to talk to. You know, this is quite a strong start for a 16 year old, isn't it? Yeah. To be instructed in the fear of the Lord, to seek God and find success in that. You know, the truth is that regardless of age, it is how you go about building that is just important as what you build. You know, we all like to say, hey, look at what I built. Look at what I built. Isn't it great? Yeah, but what I want to know is how did you build it? Because how you build it will instruct others to build according to the righteous standard. If you build using wood, hay, and stubble, you might look like you have something in the end, but it's going to be burned up. You might be able to deceive people, but it's going to be burned up. How you build gold, fine precious stones, that is what lasts for eternity. Amen. And this young man has a great start. This 16-year-old had more right than most 30-year-old Christians today. And I kind of think it was the fact that he was 16. Yeah. I think it was the fact that he was 16 years old that caused him to seek these things in his life. Now think about that for a second. If we place all of the responsibility on some of the men in this church, they would think, oh yeah, I could do it. I've got experience. I've been a Christian for 20 years. I can handle it. But you put it on Chris Hall's shoulders and it might cause him to really seek the face of God. It might cause him to become so dependent and desperate that he is looking for instruction instead of shoving it away. When you are dependent on the Lord, when you have responsibility that is on your shoulders and you know you can't handle it, like this 16-year-old Uzziah, it causes you to look for instruction. Instruction doesn't have to look for you. You're looking for it. It causes you to be led in the fear of the Lord. Not think about the fear of the Lord after you've sinned majorly, but to be led in the fear of the Lord. And it causes you to seek after God on a daily basis. Man, that's a life God can bless, isn't it? So this is the first of three stages that we're going to see in Uzziah's life. We're going to look at each one of them this evening. But just to remind you how we started so far. We have a territory that has not been occupied by Israel in quite some time. That the author, Ezra, wants you to know he's the one that rebuilt it. That city in our day and times and in the future of biblical history will become increasingly important. He was dependent upon the living God because he understood he was woefully inadequate for the task. He sought out instruction and God gave him success. This reminded us of 1 Peter 5, 5 through 10. I'm going to go ahead and read it to you, and you can read it with me on the screen. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. Amen. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. So our first sentence here is saying, young men, in the same way, be submissive to those that are older. In other passages, it tells you to treat them as if they were your father. Now, all of you, regardless of your age, regardless of your placement in life, Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. 
Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Saints, there's a humility before the living God that we are going to cultivate that comes from this first stage in Uzziah's life that we would do well to learn from. That he may lift you up in due time, in his timing and on others. Cast all your anxiety, anxiety, fear, worry, whatever you would like to place there as a synonym, on him because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Saints, we are blessed to be a part of a church that is dangerous. We are disciples confronting danger. Amen. And our enemy is not particularly happy about that, and he is prowling around looking for the opportunity to devour men from our ranks. Verse 9, resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. I can tell you tonight that your brothers in the one association are fighting hand, tooth, and nail for holiness. They're fighting for dependency and humility. They're fighting for their love to be the kind that does not grow cold. Amen. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the great God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. After last Monday's teaching, this is where we ended. That our God, the God of all grace, is able to restore us, make us strong, firm, and steadfast. Come on. Listen, consider Uzziah. He was advantaged in every way by my, what might have been perceived as adversity or disadvantage. The fact that he was young, the fact that he was inexperienced, the fact that the man who should have let him died because of sin early on, advantaged him in every way because he recognized the calling of God. God made him strong, firm, and steadfast. This is the state that we, that you, that as Christians before the living God are the strongest when we are utterly dependent upon him and understand our own lack. That is when his power is at work in us. I know many of you are currently feeling like Uzziah, inadequate for the task. You hear about the standard. You realize what God is calling our church to and what our mission is, that he's calling us to reinforce a revelation that he's given us. This is your strength, that you might find a supernatural power in the midst of your dependency. Now, many of you feel yourselves further along than you are. But in God's good grace, he will bring you to this place of utter dependency one way or another. There's no one who's exempt from it. Our God is a kind God. He will bring you to this place where he's able to use you and fill you with power. But it will come through that utter dependency. Brother Linton, you would pick up in verse 6 and read through 8 for us. He went to war against the Philistines and broke down the wall of Gath, Japheth, and Ashdod. He then rebuilt the towns near Ashdod and elsewhere among the Philistines. God helped them against the Philistines and against the Arabs who lived in Gerbel and against the Midianites. The Ammonites brought tribute to Uzziah, and his fame spread as far as the border of Egypt, because he had become very powerful. Now, I love this. We're talking about his humble origins. We're talking about the factors that let him grow. The fact that he was young and inexperienced. The fact he was instructed by the Lord. The fact that, that 
he was seeking God and being led in the fear of God. Through all of that and his growing, you know the first thing that he did? He went to war. Immediately after all of these things, after being instructed in seeking his God, the first thing that he did was go to war. Man, that is the whole goal of this ministry, is that to bring you to a place where you are seeking after your God. You're dependent on the living God and immediately going to war, fighting for the things you know you need to be fighting for. It does no good to say that you are dependent on the Lord. Oh, I'm seeking after him, but there's no warfare in your life. That's what happens when you seek after God, is you immediately go to war. Now, not war with your brothers. I'm not talking about a theological debate here. What I'm talking about is you go to war against the enemies inside your own home, the enemies inside your own heart. Say that with me. After seeking the Lord, Lord, we go to war. war. If there is no war in your life, you have to ask yourself, are you really seeking after the Lord? That's a good question. Now, he started. I want you to get this. He's going to war. And these nations that he's going to war with are some pretty notable nations, aren't they? You've got the Philistines. You've got the area of the whole coastal plain on the west of Israel. You've got the Arabs that are in the south, east, and east areas. You have the Mayanites who are in the south. You have the Ammonites that are in the northeastern part of Israel. You know what he's doing? He is pushing back against Egypt as well. He is expanding these borders like a messianic king would do. He's starting from humble beginnings, just like his father David did. And the Lord was with him, much like his father David. We begin to see a kind of strength and favor of the Lord that has been absent since the time of Solomon. We've had a lot of craziness going on since that time. And now we're getting to a point where, man, this is like where we should have always been. Uzziah begins to look very much like the Davidic Messianic king. And he should. He is in the line of David, and every king should be acting that way. But he gets it right here. He restores Judah to a height that it is not seen in many generations. Now that's exciting, isn't it? Isn't part of you like, man, I want to see what happens next. Look, we can go on about Uzziah's national accomplishments, but there is a specific reason that he was so successful as a king. He was a king who was desperate for instruction, and he was hungry. Somebody say hungry. Hungry. Hungry for godly accomplishment. I cannot stress enough, he was hungry for godly accomplishment. He was driven for godly accomplishment. And he was motivated to progress further than his father and grandfather before him had. He wasn't satisfied with the status quo. We have a scripture that I'd like to... Cody, why don't you get Proverbs 16, 26 for me? The laborer's appetite works for him. His hunger drives him on. Read it one more time for me. Get it as loud as you can. The laborer's appetite works for him. His hunger drives him on. Ah, Uzziah was just more skilled than most men. He was just more gifted than most men. That's, that's why God favored him. Saints, not at all. Your appetite, his appetite, our appetite is what causes us to be driven along. We must get past discouraging times, dry times, 
Times where you feel like, as if you're incapable of doing the next thing that God has told, a, told you to do. By asking him to cultivate in you a holy hunger for his work. To learn from Uzziah tonight, we need our desire to be elevated. Our appetite to grow and our hunger to increase. God has not presented anything before us that is bad, that cannot be done, or that is beyond our grasp in his power. He has given us good and righteous things to accomplish. The issue is, are we hungry for it? Come on, I tell you tonight, I want everything that the Lord has for me. Yeah. I want everything the Lord has for my wife. Yeah. Everything the Lord has for my children. Yeah. And the calling that is upon our lives collectively. Yeah. We don't intend to stop until we get it. How about you? Yeah. Look, we want to capitalize this for a second. Sometimes I know what it's like. You look at other brothers in the room and you're like, man, they, they are just moving so far beyond me. They're moving so fast. Why am I not moving so fast like they are? Well, the simple answer is that you might not want it bad enough like they want it. We have to start learning to deal with the root of this problem. What we tend to do is we tend to blame everything else Except our own desires. Look, it's okay to admit, man, I just don't want it bad enough. It's okay to admit that. You know where that leads you? You start praying things like, Lord, help me to want it more. Help me to increase my desire. I don't want it bad enough. We tend to look at everything else and go, well, it's this, it's this situation in my life's fault why I'm not growing. No. And that's not true at all. When you've got the burning hunger inside of you, you don't stop. Have you ever seen a welfare line? They're standing in line for so long to get food, and they're not leaving because they're hungry. Man, it's possible that your hunger can help you push back any walls in your life. It's possible that you can be so hungry you say, I am not going to stop till I get what I want. Let's pray to the living God as we continue that our hunger grows in this place. Amen? Amen. And let's pick up in verse 9 and read to 10. Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate, at the valley gate, and at the angle of the wall, and he fortified them. He also built towers in the desert and dug many systems, because he had much livestock in the foothills and in the plain. He had people working, in his, in, working his fields and vineyards in the hills and in the fertile lands, for he loved the soil. Now, that's incredible. He's doing all of these things. He's building up these walls. You remember last week, walls got torn down? And this week, he's building up those walls. He's building towers in the desert and digging cisterns. And what is the reason why? For he loved the soil. Does that strike you odd? At any, just a little bit? He loved the soil? I don't know about you, but that struck me. At, like, What does that mean? Like, he loved dirt? I, I don't know. <laughs> Look, the King James says that he was a man of husbandry. Now, I don't know about you, but that didn't do much for me either. I'm like, what? Husbandry? Like, I'm not going to go into what I thought about that. But we studied the word. We looked it up. Actually, Judah knew what it meant. Uh, It's less common vernacular today, but it would be akin to having a green thumb or an aggy heart. Now I'm looking at some I'm looking at some of you from Chicago, from New York, from Louisiana, and you're like, what's an Aggie heart? This is Texas. We have a college called Texas AM. 
and it is the primary college in the country of Texas for agriculture. <laughs> to have an Aggie heart means you love to raise livestock and you like to plant things, apparently. <laughs> but look, for us, a green thumb seems to fall short of the intent of the holy written word of God. Amen. I don't think that he's building things up just because he had a green thumb. I don't think the intent of the holy written word of God is that a king had a green thumb and had some success. So we want to show you the Hebrew word behind uh, for he loved the soil. So we looked it up, and this Hebrew word means, it's adama, which means the ground or the land. But it's not just the ground like you would think of just plain dirt laying there. This is the ground as general, tilled, so not just uncultivated land, but tilled land, and not just tilled land, land that is yielding sustenance. Land that is yielding sustenance. The I like verse C, or uh, definition C, it says earth substance. You know what that means. But for building and constructing. That I understand. For building and constructing. Now think about that. Uzziah had a specific de desire. He loved general ground, tilled ground, and ground that yield sustenance. He loved ground that was for building and constructing. You know what that tells us? Uzziah had a specific desire in his heart. That was a specific desire to see things completed. Oh, come on. Come on. There we go. Not a desire to start things, a desire to see things completed. Now, I don't know about you. I think maybe J.J. and Elder Charlie and Tom, all of you construction guys, you know, you can identify with that, can't you? We love to see the finished product. We love when we start a job to work through the job till we get to the end and we get to stand and see the finished product. You know what that does inside of us? It makes us want to go finish more projects. It makes us want to go complete more things. Now, this needs to be ingrained in all of us here tonight. This is talking about a specific desire that can look at a plot of ground and say, I can build on that. It looks at unfinished material and says, I want to refine it. I want to build on it. I can't rest until it is fully built up and fully prospered. Amen. Come on, say we've got to cultivate that. We've got to cultivate that. We have to cultivate the heart like Uzziah that he had to look at an unfinished product or a plot of land and not be satisfied until it is built up. That is a pastoring kind of heart that God is building in this church. Amen. That is a shepherding kind of heart to look at unrefined things and say, you know what? That's not good enough for me. I want to see finished products. Amen. Amen. Now, tonight we're not going to talk about books that you started and didn't finish. <laughs> we're not going to talk about home renovation projects that you started and didn't finish. We're not going to talk about numerous things that are of no importance at the end of the day. What we are going to talk about is, is a character trait and a hunger and desire before the living God. How to cultivate a desire to see his work in your life, your wife, your children, and in your brothers. Complete it. Amen. Does that sound good to you? Yes. Nick Aragina, why don't you get Jeremiah 1, 9 through 10. Then uh, Adam Cora, 2 Corinthians 13, 5 through 10. Then Chris Hall, Ephesians 4, 29. 
And then we'll pick back up in our text. Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, Now I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. Now Uzziah has already torn down a good bit of stuff. He's wrecked a couple nations. He's taken an important city that is known for trade and gives you access to international seas. But he doesn't stop there. He builds and he plants and he cultivates the ground until it produces what it was always intended to. Saints, we all have different areas that come more naturally than another. And yet every one of you are called to tear down, destroy, uproot what doesn't belong, and build up and plant what does. Now for some of you in the room... You like tending a garden. You like trimming a tree that is already producing fruit. That's comfortable for you. You like being encouraging. You cannot go further without tearing down, destroying, overthrowing, and uprooting what must be removed. Now to the other half of you in the room that really like uprooting, tearing down, and destroying, but you're not so much for the whole building up thing, we have to learn how to complete Christ's work. Our goal is to create the finished product that is the body of Christ on earth performing the mission and the revelation that he gave us. Tonight we're going to reinforce what he's given us. In every area, we will not allow things that are hostile to God's will in our own life. We also will not allow areas of land to go uncultivated and unbuilt upon. We will rise to become the body that we are called to be. Who has 2 Corinthians 13? whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And I trust that you will discover that we have not failed the test. No, we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong. Not that people will see that we have stood the test, but that you will do what is right, even though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We are glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong. And our prayer is for your perfection. Come on. This is why I write these things when I am absent. That when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority. The authority the Lord God, Lord gave me for building you up, not for tearing you down. Now you see, Paul had the same heart that Isaiah had. He loved the soil. He loved to see things grow in the soil. He loved to see fruit grow up and actually produce the kind of fruit that is useful for the kingdom. Now, one of the things you have to look at in Paul's life that is incredible is he says, I say this, that I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority. Paul actually had the authority that he could have been harsh. But you know what his primary concern was? Building up, not tearing down. That is how you become a man who loves the soil or loves cultivated ground. And you become a man of authority who can wield that authority rightly. Your concern is that you want to see things built up rightly and you cannot rest until it is. Quite frankly, some of you are way too easily able to let things uncultivated. Just leave it uncultivated. Just, I don't want to have to deal with it. I don't want to do the hard work that's required to cultivate this ground. We have to develop an uncomfortableness inside of us that will not rest until these things and areas in our lives and in our homes 
are fully finished Amen. developing fruit. Amen. That is how you become a man with this heart like Paul was. Who's got Ephesians 4, 29 through 30? Look, as Justin speaking, a couple other things occurred to me as we're going there. He starts out by saying, test yourself. Amen. Saints, after our last few services from Sunday to Wednesday to Monday, I don't think that's an unreasonable thing for any man in the room to do. Yeah. To test yourself to see where you're actually at. Yeah. And notice that Paul's interactions with them were contingent upon whether or not they chose to self-cultivate. See, God is speaking to us in advance and He's telling you, hey, that test is drawing near. That test is coming soon. You failed in this in the past, but I'm telling you now, harvest time is around the corner. The axe is at the root. That's good. Let's see what you do or don't have because He wants you to pass it, yeah. not because He wants you to fail it. Yeah. And our interactions with Him and the leaders in our life will be based upon whether or not we heed the warning in advance. Now, as we go to Ephesians 4, it's going to give us an indicator as to what's actually going on in our heart and how to recognize it. Ephesians 4, 29. No foul language is to come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need, so that it gives grace to those who hear it. And don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You are sealed by Him for the day of redemption. And I like the translation that he just read from. It gives grace, unwholesome, or foul. Thanks. What the Bible defines as foul language is language that is not building up those that are around you, i.e. failing to cultivate their life, failing to strengthen them in their needs, that it may benefit those that listen. In other words, it's self-centered speech and self-centered thoughts. The kind of heart that we are speaking about, that wishes to cultivate the soil that you're around, to build on the ground that God has given you, it starts with your speech. It starts with your interactions with your brothers on your left and right with your prayer life, with your time before, between you and the living God. By the way that you speak to others and the way that you speak about others when they're not around really gives you an indication as to whether or not you're looking to build them up or whether you have just decided that this is not worth working with. Come on, man. Now, let me say that again because i got a little tongue-tied. Right. Say it. The way that you speak to others, so that's me and Pastor Matthew speaking face-to-face, and the way that you speak about others is an indicator as to whether or not you have a heart that desires, like Paul, like Uzziah, to build up, to cultivate the ground. And it quite clearly indicates the areas that you do not love the soil. You have no intention of building up or cultivating. You're simply concerned with what affects you in your little life. Me, mine, my own, and the reason I'm talking about it is because it has somehow affected me, mine, and my own. God is calling LCM to a heart that wants to cultivate the soil. Amen. That will not quit until it has been built upon and has been completed. This is LCM. We finish what we start. Because we want to have Christ's character formed in us and in our brothers. Listen, as a general rule of thumb for your own habits in your life, don't start anything that you don't finish. Now, we may be talking about something trivial like a book, but I promise you that same character trait will transfer to everything else that you do. Absolutely. It would have been better for you to not have started it than to fail to complete it. Let's ask the Lord while we move on to increase in us a desire, a holy passion to see things grow in our hearts, the hearts of our wives, the hearts of our children, and in our mission calling as a body. And then we'll be able to look at the world around us and cause it to grow. But we'll start with this house. Is yeah. that fair enough? Amen. Amen. 
Brother Linton, verse 11 and 12. Man, say that again. Uzziah had a well-trained army ready to go out by the divisions according to their numbers as mustered by Jeliel, the the secretary, (laughs) and Masiah, the officer, under the direction of Yes. one of the royal officials. The total number of family leaders over the fighting men was 2,600. Wait, the total number of who? Family leaders. The total number of who? Family leaders. You mean it wasn't military leaders? You mean it wasn't generals? You mean it wasn't like George Patton showed up himself and led these men, this well-trained army? Notice that the men were well-trained and placed under family leaders. Oh, come on now. Man, the strength of our families leads the war effort. It's not the strength of the single men. It's not the strength of anything else in our body. It's the strength of the families in our church that directs the fighting of this church. Yes. Now listen to the Yes. Your family has to be strong to affect the war plan of God. We know that, right? My family has to be strong. But this is not just talking about one family. Just like one man is not an island unto himself, one family is not an island unto themselves. Yes, your family has to be strong in this body for you to be a well-trained fighting man. For your children to be well-trained fighting men. But as a whole, our church, we have to have strong families together as one unit to have an army of well-trained men. Are y'all hearing that? It can't just be that one family is doing well over here, one family is doing well over here, and one family is doing well over here. That is not how we have well-trained men amongst us. We have well-trained men in our one association. We have one well-trained men in this church because we have a cultivation of unity in all of the families rising up together, becoming strong as one. Look, it's just one of those nights. We've got a couple points that are not in the notes. Again and again, we get the glory, the opportunity as disciples. You witness the fruit of having applied the fam- family values that this church teaches from the beginning or failing to have done so for years. You will eat it either way. Watch men rise in strength because they got the basic fundamentals of their home right and others fall apart when the wind blows on them because they never got their foundation in order. Listen, if you want to judge the strength of a man, don't look at his business practices. Don't look at how well he does or doesn't speak. Look at his home. If you want to judge us and the strength that we have, Look at our homes. That is the measure of a man. Look, what we're not asking you is to get your family together and you become the strongest family in the church. What we are asking you is that you rise up to the standard of families that already exist in this church. Together. When we do that, when all of the families are growing as one and there's not some that are lagging behind and there's not some that are way ahead of the pack, when we are all growing together as one, then we will no longer have an unbalanced war effort. Amen. You know what that causes you to do? When we're focused on growing together, man, your fellowship gets important, doesn't it? Interfamily fellowship gets very important. Events like 4th of July are not just about popping fireworks. They're about getting together and seeing how the families are doing. Because if we want to send out well-trained men, and we do, don't we? I want to be one of those well-trained men. 
If we want to do that, we're going to have to have a strong foundation that is equal, all at the same level, strength together. And this, when we have an equal plane of strong families, this produces well-trained men. You want to produce some well-trained men in here? Then we're going to have to grow together. Now, Judah's going to show you, this doesn't surprise you, but that word well-trained in uh, the Hebrew is not exactly well-trained. And Judah's going to take you through the Hebrew on that. All right, let's pop this slide up. All right, so right to left. Moreover, had Uzziah a post of fighting it. Anybody notice that fighting there is a compound word? Yeah. Yeah. There's two different Strong's numbers that make this up. Now, when you're looking at this, after a little scholarly Hebrew study, we notice that there were two words for fighting men, mostly because the interlinear just showed us. And uh, Justin helped me out a little bit while I'm fumbling around, like, hey, what does this mean? Well, the last one, moving from right to left, is 4421 Hebrew. This is Melchama, which means war or men of fighting in most contexts. It's also used in Exodus 15, where it calls God a warrior. And Ish, Melchama. The idea is that it's somebody who is... Yeah, he's been helping me. I'm trying. (laughs) Growing every single day. It's a man who fights. Hebrew is a very functional language. It's not soldier. It's not, hey, he's a great leader. It's it's a man who fights. That's what he does. That's his profession, killing people. I got it? Men who fight. That's not the only word, though. And that happens to be the one we see regularly. The one that we are less familiar with is the first word. This is Hebrew 6, 2, 1, 3. You're going to have to help me with this one. Asa? Ose or Asa? We have another slide for you. We want to show you what this looks like. To do, to fashion, to accomplish, to make, to do, to work, to make, to produce, to do, to work, to deal with, (laughs) to act or to act with effect. Isn't you beginning to get the idea? To make, to produce. These were fighting men that were not here to play patty cake. They were specifically fighting men that when they were sent, they dealt with the problem. They were fighting men that supported the king with effect. They were fighting men that when they showed up, stuff happened, if you will. Now, there are lots of trained fighting men. There are opposing armies. But something about the leadership of Uzziah and leading families not only produced men who were trained, but produced men who, when they showed up, the problem was dealt with. There was an effect that followed their actions. These men were not just men who went to war. Now, we're not teaching in kings tonight. I'll just say succinctly that taking off your armor is a lot different than putting it back on again. And the scripture indicates that these were the kind of men, because of the discipleship, cultivation, and family structure that they had, that when they went to war, they were able to take it off, their armor off again, and go home to their children, and the other guys were not. They were men who went to war and got things done. They made things happen. Saints, this is what happens when a body builds strong family units and understands the mission that we were all destined for, that we take the revelation that has been given and we reinforce the design. We don't just fight, we win. Amen. Do you want to win? Yes. yes. Brother Linton, get 
13 through 15 for us. Under their command was an army of 307, 500,000 men trained for war, a powerful force to support the king against his enemies. Uzziah provided shields, spears, helmets, coats of armor, bows, and sling stones for the entire army. In Jerusalem, he made machines designed by skillful men for use on the towers and on the corner defenses to shoot arrows and hurl large stones. His fame spread far and wide, for he was greatly helped until he became powerful. Now, I have to be quite honest. Judah and I, today, we, we had a great time praying through the tabernacle. We're repenting of hidden areas that we didn't even know we had in our heart. We got a revelatory word for you guys. We're studying the deepest things that anybody can study in the scripture. And quite frankly, I got a little bit intrigued about these machines. <laughs> I mean, we are in the holy writ of God that men have shed their blood for. And it says that he made machines. I'm like, what are these things? You know, after careful study... We discovered that Ezra himself actually drew pictures of these machines. Wow. Yeah. I want to show you on a slide. This right here is what is referred to as... It was in the scroll of Wikipedia, by the way. <laughs> Go figure. Acts class, you learn about Wikipedia. This is what is referred to as a ballista. Now, these things were, were nasty. These things you could set up on the wall... If you thought a bow and arrow did some damage, imagine what this thing would do to, I don't know. I mean, even an elephant carrying troops to a wall probably had to stay clear of that thing. Now, when we're studying these things, what's neat is that all secular scholars, when you're reading about ballistas, they say that the Greeks invented it around 400 B.C. Well, there's a problem with that. <laughs> However, as you can see, Ezra records Uzziah making these around 700 B.C. Huh. It's almost like there is a secular, I don't know, scheme in place to discredit the word of God and anything Israel has done good for the world. But let's pick up and look at the next one. This is the next machine listed, and it's what is referred to as a catapult or a trebuchet. And this probably won't blow your mind, but almost all scholars believe that the Chinese invented this around 400 B.C. China. China. China invented that thing. But, however, the test results are in, and the Chinese are not the father. Ezra records Uzziah making these around 700 B.C. Now, what we have to glean from that is that there is no critical application to the word that you can apply that proves it false. Yes. Secular scholars often critique the word of God as being antiquated and retrograde. Yeah. But as we can see, the Bible is usually further ahead of its time. Yeah. Look, they're always asking scientific questions. Well, how did the Bible not know about this? Give it enough time. They will find another scientific <laughs> discovery that comes right along where the Bible says it should be. Yeah. Look, don't ever get it into your mind that the Bible is somehow fainted flawed that it could be proven wrong it can't yeah the men that think they can prove it wrong or find some little textual issue are just men that don't understand the word as a holistic book the more you study in the word you find out that it is a perfectly patented book by the holy spirit and the voice of the prophets given to you there is no flaw in it Amen. look there are two further points that we want you to glean from this one 
that the man who trusts in the living God, even if he starts as a boy, God will show him how to accomplish anything. You will find yourself being armed with things that the rest of the world won't invent for hundreds of years down the road because you needed it, and the Lord showed you how to do it. Listen, we now have more confidence and a hunger that drives a man along, that will not quit, that studies, that fights, that does what is required, and the ability of the Spirit to empower that man than the strength of the world around us. The other very important point is that it's a good thing that the Lord saved Justin and I because we either would be students of war or students of the word. (laughs) And we still have a few interest in things like this and we wanted to share it with you. Now, our major emphasis from these couple verses, what we want to focus on is the last phrase of the verse. For he was greatly helped until he became powerful. Man, for all of the pomp and the power that we just saw, that one verse causes my own heart to sink. Ezra makes the point that he had help along the way to becoming powerful, but the help ceased after he became powerful. It really begs the question, what happened? Did he just stop needing the help of the Lord now that he had everything the Lord had provided for him? Did he stop seeking him now that he was surrounded by his warriors and his counsel? We are about to lead the second stage in Uzziah's life. He's gone from a boy to a messianic conquering king. But pay attention to what marks it. We should never seek to become more powerful in and of ourselves. Never more secure, never more comfortable, never more calculated. In and of ourselves, you have no need of power. The only power that you should seek to walk in more fully is the power of Christ through your weakness. Our power comes from great trust in the Lord. The kind of faith that is found in a centurion that at the words of Jesus he obeys. Not our ability to carry out the work in our own strength. Not our ability to arrange a financial situation that seems beneficial. And our great trust in the Lord. For many, and when I say many, I've been around for a while since these guys age. Many who started out in trust of the Lord. This became a secret recipe for their downfall when they became powerful and received what they needed. And everybody thinks, oh, that's not going to be me. Lord, bless me. (laughs) They think, oh, that's so terrible. The worst thing that God could ever do for the majority of us in this room is make the task that he put in front of you easy. Regardless of what we're speaking about, your workplace, your study, your interactions with the world around you, the worst thing that he could do for you is make you powerful and your task easy. Everybody thinks they're the exception to the rule, and I found out since I was a little boy, you're not. So how about we delight in the adversity that God gives us because it proves that we're actually his and we might suffer alongside Christ. Now when Judah says downfall, he's not just talking about falling away from the Lord. We have seen many have this kind of pride and success and not leaning on their own strength after having miraculous testimonies fall away. But that's not quite what we're talking about, just falling away. When Judah's talking about a downfall, he's talking about the any kind of downfall that will cause you to degrade from your success, from what God is doing in your life, from being active on the heels of the enemy. Uh, The type of downfall that I'm thinking of is when you become so prideful and then someone tries to give you a word, you can't accept it because you have allowed yourself to no longer trust in the Lord and His counsel and you're trusting in your own strength. That's a downfall. The kind of downfalls in your life that we can't really see until it happens 
is when we're heading into a position where we might get laid off at our jobs because we didn't, you know, do what we were supposed to do, but we didn't see it along the way because we didn't trust in the Lord enough to do what we needed to do. Downfalls are all over the place, and we're not just talking about a big moment. We're talking about moments in our lives where we are backing away from the standard a little bit, where we are, where we are not receiving something that God has for us, and we just can't. But look, Judah talked about this being a recipe, a secret recipe for downfall. This is a secret recipe that Satan has for you to try to get you so successful to the point where you're not trusting in the Lord. Now, I'm going to go back through Uzziah's life, and I just want you to hear this. When I read this, I want you to put yourself in Uzziah's situation here. Okay, you're going to do that? As I read, you're going to think about areas of your life. You're going to think about times in the past where you fulfilled this. All right. He was 16 and experienced. He was 16 and inexperienced, but teachable and dependent. There a time in your life where you've been teachable and dependent? He grew in hunger and desire to be like his father David. And that happened, that's happened in every person in this room. There are moments in your life where you just had a raging hunger, and then somehow, somewhere, you find that hunger disappeared. He uprooted nasty and wicked forces in the land. I know we've all done that. We've all crushed some nasty things in our heart. He had a heart to cultivate and build up the land he had conquered. He was accompanied by men who went to war and got the job done. Not just showed up with spears in their hands. They actually got the job done. But all of this led to a pride and self-reliance that sought to undo all of his previous success. He has a great track record so far. And look, this was a span of 52 years in Uzziah's life. But for you, it might be a span of a week. You might get right on a Sunday, and then the next day, you are hungering and desiring. The next day, you're uprooting nasty things. The next day, you're cultivating. The next day, you're accompanied by men. But then you show up the next week, and you have a pride inside of you because of how you did the last week. Many of us experience weeks of success. Or look, I'm just going to say, I'm going to say success, but let's just call it what it might be for you. You might experience a, a, a week that lacks hostility in your life. And you think that's success. And you feel good about it. And you're like, man, I'm doing great. I'm doing good because I didn't have any hostility. Wrong. But this causes you to swell up in confidence, the kind of confidence that is not good for you. The kind of confidence that thinks, you know what? I, I actually kind of got this. I'm feeling good about how the week went. Man, I have seen many of you who are hungering and you are thirsty and you are just seeking after the Lord and you go to people and you're like, man, where do I need to grow? And then I've seen the same people show up and just all, yeah, man, everything's good, everything's great. And I can tell immediately what happened. You think you had a good week. And that is the pride that came right before the downfall. Look, this is not good for us to have that kind of confidence. This is when we start to miss the heart of what got us here. The heart of hungering. The heart of always be needing instruction. The heart of seeking the Lord. And we're going to get into that in Isaiah's life. And we're going to, I'm sorry, Uzziah's life. And we're going to change it in this room. Amen. Are you starting to notice areas of your life where you might have fallen prey to that? Yes. We're going to change it tonight. Linton, would you pick up in verse 16 and we're going to keep going. But after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. 
All right. Now, we've used you as an example for many things. I'm going to put myself in the scenario now. We're going to look at the beginning of what the Scripture says is his downfall. He's become powerful. He's become prideful. He's had some successes. He thinks, ah, this next thing that's right in front of me, I, I got it. Judah says, I know exactly what to do. I'm going to go handle that myself. Because I'm the anointed guy and, you know, the Lord's with me. It'll be just fine. There is only one king. Somebody say, one king. One king. From the line of Judah, who can operate as both a king and a priest. One king, who can operate both as a king and a priest. And he comes from the priesthood of Melchizedek. We don't have time to go into this this evening. But he acted an awful lot like a messianic king, and that was great. It seems as if the messianic king started to go to his head, where rather than being a shadow and a type, he thought he was the savior of Israel. The first thing that shows up in his life is he's trying to run in another guy's lane, someone else's function or someone else's task, all the while losing focus of his main ministry and his main enemy, the pride of his own heart and the condition of his own flock. We see this often. And Christians in this body. I see this often at times in my life. And we have some success in a week. Or maybe a month. And then we lose focus on what we really are. And begin to think we are something that we are not. Saints, this is the downfall of men of God. You got it right. You prophesied once and it was accurately. The pastors accepted you and you didn't get turned away this time. And now you think you're a prophet Yes, I am the man of God. Yeah, you don't say that, but then you walk into your home with zero discernment, arrogant, and think that you pretty much already know what you need to do, and then you realize your wife is off a rocker, and you have zero discernment, word, or help for her in that moment, and your little kingdom crumbles. And the reality is that's not an uncommon event for many of us in the room, and yet we somehow don't connect the dots that is leading us there. Mm. We have success when we apply ourselves to what we are supposed to be doing every day, almost like a daily discipline, reinforcing what God has already told us to do that granted us victory. We're not going to read to you out of Revelation 2 tonight about do the things that you did at first, where God is speaking to a body that loves him, and yet things are crushing and eviscerating the fruit that they should be producing. As we are supposed to be doing these things, we think... Ah, it's time for me to move on with another mission. I have done what God has told me, and so now he's expanding my arena. There's these other 13 things or this business that I now need to attend to. You know, I really have my own children under great control. They're doing awesome. I'm now going to chew out everyone else and tell them what I think they should be doing. All the while, your kids are sinning in the other room and you don't notice it. Or, hey, I made a sale at work, I sold a property or I sold a job. And your home is falling apart and bleeding at the seams. But we are going to focus on the mission that God has given us. Who wants to get Romans 12, verse 3? Nick Rosales, you get it. Galatians 6, 2 through 5 is our next one. Linton. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. Paul Rosales. That'll be it. We can pick up in Romans 12 when you're there. Romans 12, 3. For by the grace given me, I say 
not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. The NIV says, in accordance, think it, th- I'm going to go back a little bit. Think of yourself with sober judgment. Man, I can tell you that is one of the hardest things to do about yourself. We all want to think of ourselves as further along than we really are. And Paul is appealing. And he says, for, by the grace given to me. He's saying, what was given to me, I appeal to you. He knows where he's at. He is secure in where he's at. And he's telling, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but think of yourself in sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Man, think of yourself in the accordance of the calling God has given you. Think of yourself in accordance to the word that God has spoken to you and not reaching for anything else that doesn't belong to you. The very first thing that is noted in Uzziah's life when he becomes prideful is he starts doing things that he has no business doing and it is not his calling to do. He starts trying to operate in a station that's not his. Look, the pride that comes from higher views of ourselves, it causes you to mission drift. You start forgetting what got you where you are currently. And you start thinking, man, if I, if I can correct Tito so well like I corrected him, there's nothing I can't do. Man, I'm probably a children's ministry because God used me to do that. Man. I, no, I've heard, I've heard many of you say this in this room. You come and talk and you're like, I hadn't seen you in a long time. And you want to come talk about how you counseled somebody else and how well you did it. And then I see you a week later and I'm like, hey, what's going on in your life? You counseled somebody else and you actually got one right. And you caused to think about yourself, man, I must be a counselor. I must be a counselor because God used me. And then you start to mission drift where you actually are supposed to be. Uzziah was a king, not a priest. And while he knew he was a king, while he was focused on being a king, he was wildly successful. But the moment that he got prideful, he started thinking he was a priest. You have been, (laughs) this is another one. You have been doing what the pastors said for a month. And now you think you should be a pastor? Look. Some of you are laughing, but this is serious. Nobody, I mean, I'm sure none of you are like me and says, you know, I ought to be a pastor right now. But you know what that causes you to do? It causes you to start looking at other people and say, hey, what? I'm not going to listen to the correction. That's no, your correction doesn't apply. I know better. I have been walking rightly and God has spoke to me last week. And no, what you're saying is not true. Well, quite frankly, if, if it's not true, then why would I be saying it? Okay. We need to not think highly of ourselves in such a way that we are fantasizing something that we're really not and we cannot receive what the Lord is trying to give us. Look, we don't want to bog down too long, but let me contextualize this in one other manner. When we say you think you're a pastor, you may never say that, but if after doing a month of what the pastor said, you see some success, you lose the feeling, the need to then consult the pastor about the next decision. So you saw some fruit in an area, and now you've become a pastor in and of yourself to yourself. Do you understand the deceit that's at play here? So what this looks like is you're contemplating something that is outrageously stupid, and everyone can tell except you. 
And you text one of the numerous leaders that we have available. Didn't get them. Well, that probably means from God that I was right, and I'm just going to go ahead and do it, and then I'll catch up with him later about it. That's not hypothetical, saints. It happens in this room. When we believe that we have what we need in and of ourselves because we've had an area of victory, it is a recipe for the enemy to burn you, devour you. And if you're lucky because God loves you, he will burn your house to the ground and teach you to rebuild it. Amen. But we cannot be conceited. And we're saying this nicely because last week was a bit intense and it was hard on us as well. Yeah. If you can receive it with a nice voice, I will be happy to say it with a nice voice. Don't treat it differently because I'm not angry. This is like your kids. Listen the first time it's being spoken because it was true whether or not mom or dad was angry with you when they said it. Yeah, you yeah. should obey it. Look, when we take sober judgment of what God has given us, when we are content with little, what is the scripture? Godliness with contentment is great gain. When we're content with what he has given and we take sober judgment, we won't operate in our own strength. We will not do those things because we'll be hungry. Look, we, we also won't just operate in what feels good to us in the moment. Ooh, come on. Many of us, when we get prideful, when we get full of that kind of pride, we only do what feels good to us. We don't stretch out anymore and start to challenge ourselves with what's difficult. When we are comfortable and secure and taking sober judgment, it causes us to humbly, dependently go after the things that are hardest for us because we know that's what we need. Amen. We must remain sober about what God's given us. Hey, who's got Galatians 2, or 6, 2 through 5? Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions. Then... He can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else. For each one should carry his own load. Look, it goes without saying the Uzziah symptom has affected the body of Christ for far too long. We often think we are something and yet so deceived that we feel that we don't need help, don't need a correction, or don't need to continue to walk out our salvation with fear and trembling. I can tell you the longer that I've walked with the Lord, the closer that I've gotten to him, the more I'm constantly re-examining my life and crying out to him with fear and trembling. I can tell you the pastors and elders in this room, the more weight and responsibility they've had to carry, the longer they've walked with the Lord, the more they're testing their own actions. It's a sign of immaturity and adolescent Christianity, regardless of your age, when you fail to test your own actions and assume that you have it. It's like the 15-year-old that just got his license. If we learn to test ourselves with sober judgment, it will free us to actually have godly pride, godly confidence, godly progress in what he is making us into. Saints, we're not going to carry anybody else's load if you're failing to carry your own load in your family. If God has highlighted something to you over the last seven days that he's demanding you must change, There is no future work. There is no carrying someone else's load. There is no productivity into the kingdom until we carry our own load and start by taking up the mission that God has given us. Who has 1 Corinthians 9? Verse 24 through 27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? 
run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. Running what? Aimlessly. Aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Look, pride causes us to become aimless in our race. It causes us to do all kinds of weird stuff that we are not supposed to do. Pride will cause you, can you believe this? Pride will actually cause you to not be able to ask for help. Pride will actually get you to a place where you feel like you can't ask for help because you're like, well, I mean, I've already achieved so much. I'm already way further along than the next guy. No, that's not true. Pride will cause you to be aimless in your own ability to receive instruction. It will cause you to mission drift. It will cause you to think things like, well, I know God said this about my family, but, you know, uh, I know God spoke to me to learn this. I know God spoke to me that I need to be doing this. And yet it's just become difficult and I need to be focused on a different mission. It will cause you to neglect your family for a more prominent ministry. It will cause you to operate in your own strength and self-deception. Pride will cause you to do only what you feel good doing. <laughs> and, and some of us mask, mask that with some kind of humility that is totally false. No, that is absolutely pride. I mean, if Jesus himself says you will do greater works than I do, then we can't have the kind of pride that says I only want to look good doing something. I don't want to risk looking like a failure. Pride will cause you to want to appear further along than you really are, yet you're dying inside. You know there's a problem. You know there's something that's not right with you and the Lord, but you can't just get it out there because of this false image you've made for yourself. It will cause you to idolize your perceived feeling of progress above your deep and desperate need for immediate repentance. That is the worst thing that pride will do in your life is it will cause you to idolize the perfection that you thought you had in the past weeks. And then, God, you know what he will do as a faithful father? He will let you fall flat on your face to kill that idolatry so you can actually humble yourself and get back to where you were. But thankfully, say thankfully. Thankfully. In the verse we just read, Paul gives the prescription for this disease. After every victory, like Paul, he said, after I have preached to others... He said, no, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I won't be disqualified. That is the prescription to to curing a prideful, diseased downfall. After every victory, you must focus on the areas of your life that you still have to conquer. Say, still have to conquer. Still have to conquer. Within the calling he already gave you. If you can learn that prescription from Paul, saying, no, I do not fight like a man beating the air. I beat my own body after every success. What you'll find yourself doing is you'll say, man, I really crushed it that time, but I need to be careful. Uh-huh. I need to be careful and focus. What do I need to grow de- grow next? Yeah. Judah and I have, have had many times where we come up and preach a message and everybody's like, man, that was amazing. You know what that causes us to do? Go home and really humble ourselves because we don't want to be puffed up by our pride. Now, I think perhaps the most shocking part of what Uzziah did 
is that he went into the temple and went straight to the altar of incense. He went straight into the temple and went straight to the altar of incense. Let's walk through this together for just a minute. What, what is our first step in the tabernacle? Somebody help me out. Then we come to the bronze altar. Then what's next? Then we have the lamp of God, his menorah. And last of all, the bread of his presence, the written word of God that is there to instruct our life and is a non-negotiable. Now, he had to pass each of these things. I'm pretty sure that he had to go through the gates of praise. He had some kind of proximity with the bronze altar. It's not possible to get in the temple and not at least be close to it. You have to, it's huge. You've got to walk around it. <laughs> I'm sure some water from the labor splashed on him when he was walking through. Wow. And he enjoyed the lamp of God, like Saul being soothed by the presence of God as David played. He said, ah, yeah, that's the bread of the presence. I know that. I eat it of it daily. And he walked in to the altar of incense, the place that is prayer, that is partnering with God's will on earth. So what does that mean for us, Christian? His ability to walk through every single step and not interact wholeheartedly with a single one of them meant that he was offering a prayer before God, what the altar of incense is, that not only wasn't going to be honored, but was his downfall. Saints, I'm asking you to seriously examine your prayer life. You're walking through the steps. You're praying for what you think God wants to do on earth. You're offering incense without actually going through the gut-wrenching process of turning your mind, will, and emotions to praising the living God, to reckoning with the bronze altar, to being renewed in His image of you, not your image of yourself. Consulting the lamp of God that is the burning fire of His holiness in seriously consulting the Word of God is a dangerous proposition, particularly in a charismatic church. Men of God who are routinely conscious of their own life with sober judgment go through each gut-wrenching step to ensure that they rid themselves of pride, self-assertion, selfish ambition, and that they actually obtain the will of God in the situations they're dealing with. Christians who are stricken with the disease of pride can't see what they are doing, and they bypass the steps altogether, although they brushed up against them. This man walked through the very instruments that would have shown him this cannot be done. And it's interesting that the last one is the actual written word of God that he had to walk past right as his own pride led him into a bad decision. And I've never seen anybody walk past the written word of God and walk in a prideful decision before. Hey, we're going to move on. Will you pick up in verse 17 and 18 for me? Azariah the priest with 80 other courageous priests of the Lord followed him in. Oh, come on, say courageous priests. Courageous priests. Praise the living God. They confronted him and said, It is not right for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord. They did what? They confronted him. They confronted him. That's what courageous priests do. That is for the priests, the descendants of Aaron, who have been consecrated to burn incense. Leave the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful, and you will not be honored by the Lord. So these priests were courageous, but again, that is not what the Hebrew says about these men. These priests were chayil priests. These priests were valiant priests. These priests were mighty priests. These priests were spiritually strong priests. 
Now that begs the question, what is a, why is there a difference between valiant priests and non-valiant priests? Well, that shouldn't be there, but thank God we actually have them. Amen. We're not, when we say we need priests in our life, we don't mean the mamby-pamby priests that you find on YouTube or down the street or the other friends and other churches you like to call when you have a problem. We're talking about the valiant, mighty, spiritually strong priests who are in this room who do what? Confront. That is what a valiant priest does. Now notice that there were 81 men who went in. I love that. I think it's crazy. Uh, I mean, I'm sure this Azariah could have done that by himself, but he took 81 men in there with him. And thank God there is a righteous majority here. It's always good when there's a righteous majority, right? When there's more red than blue in the Senate, that is a good thing, right? (laughs) Now, there is a, a righteous majority here. But what happens when we don't have a righteous majority? What happens? Now that is going to be pertinent in how we handle ourselves maybe in the next four years. What happens when there is no righteous majority? Do we just stop being courageous, valiant, uh, mighty priests? Absolutely not. That goes to show us that many men or a majority do not set the standard. And I'm thankful that we have a majority in this house. Are you thankful for that? Yes. I am thankful for that. But I also want to iterate. Just having many people on one side or the other side doesn't make any particular side right. Having fewer men on one side doesn't make it more wrong or less right. And having many men on one side doesn't make it more right. There is something here that causes something to be right. It is not the many men that set the standard. And again, we ought to praise God that we have a majority in this house. It is the word of God that sets the standard. And it is the word of God that we must look to as we look to men to adhere to the word of God. Now I'm saying this because you might find yourself in a position where you are the few and there are many men on another side. But you also might find yourself in a position where you are a part of of many men, and yet you might find out that the many men are wrong. Just because you have a brother with you thinking the same thing, saying the same thing, doesn't make it right. What makes it right is either the few or the many adhering to the Word of God. But tonight we're not going to go off on discussing toxic unity, but that is a sermon that is well worth revisiting. These men address Uzziah based upon what the Word says about the priest of Aaron. That is their strength. That is their stance. That is their righteous majority. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power. Somebody say divine. 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 Divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Before we read verse 6, saints, these are the days that we live in. You want to be a Hail? You want to be a warrior? Take your stand on the word. Demolish strongholds. Demolish arguments and pretensions that set itself up against the knowledge of God in your own life and your family, and in your larger body. 
Take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Not suppressed, not subservient. Make it captive and obedient to Christ. We can't tolerate thoughts that we know are mission drift and just pretend that we're going to bury them for a little while and it'll eventually go away. Put it in chains. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. Looking at your faces, there's a few men in the room that know what that means. We will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. Saints, one man like Paul, one man like Pastor Matthew Pirro, one man like Pastor Wade, one elder like Elder Charlie or John Dang or Baj Erajina, they can change the standard that has been based when their motives, when their words, when their courage is based upon the Word of God. This must be done with fear and trembling. But what we are working to build is a culture that is based upon the Word. Where it's not just a few brave men that are willing to stand and speak. We're building a 51%, the obedience of the body, that is ready to punish every act of disobedience. That this is who we are, this is the mission that we are on, and it's not required for just a few brave men to try to course correct the room. When we preach about these things publicly, when we're talking about the axes at the root, that God is speaking to us that it's harvest time. He's speaking to us collectively. Amen. It's not any one man's responsibility to set that culture. It is our responsibility to align our culture to the Word of God. Where everyone in the room, we are fighting for the mission He has placed us on. We are reinforcing the revelation that He has given us. Listen, charismatics are the worst about this. We're not going to go too far down this track. But your revelation, your prophecy, cannot contradict the written word of God. We must become more familiar in these days with prophecy that is scripture. A way to say this is prophecy with a capital P and less lowercase p. Amen. Prophecy that is personal, regardless of whether or not it's to one individual or to the whole room, must align with what God has already spoken. Saints, we're entering days not just because of an election, but because of God's plan on earth. That you're going to need to understand prophecy. It would be good if you knew what was happening in the south of the Middle East, in the north of the Middle East, and the center of God's plan, Israel. And more pertinently on our daily life, we have a responsibility to that plan, that purpose. Deuteronomy 29, 19 warns of a man who hears the words of God, the written word, looks at the culture that God is establishing around him and goes in his own way and says, I will be blessed. That's a path that you cannot be forgiven from. If you're in this room, you have the opportunity to repent now. But there is a day coming if you, yourself, persist in the wrong way. It's not us that is cutting you off. It is you choosing to cut yourself off. Psalm 36 speaks of men who flattered themselves too much to detect or hate their own sin. Consider the flattery that was required for Uzziah to walk past the table of bread, the very word of God that says you cannot do this and do it anyway. Deuteronomy 13 warns, declares, almost as a prophecy of what would come to pass when men did miracles, they prophesied, they were spiritual, they were anointed. But it contradicted the word of God, that it could not be accepted. In fact, you must stone them. 
Saints, we put up with things that are spiritual but are not word-based. And I use the word spiritual lightly. You should look for some air quotations when I say it. The Word of God is the basis for our culture. More and more as the world around us grows dark, it must be that our culture is obedience to His Word. It's not a few men who are leading us. There are a few men who are leading us and we are following them wholeheartedly as one man and one body. Look, the best thing that Uzziah has going on at this point in his life is that he has a culture of valiant priests that adhere to the word. That is the best thing that he has going on in his life. Now, he is totally wrong. In this situation, he is the minority. And thank God the majority of that situation is based on the word. We are very thankful that this exists in this body. We have the majority in this room. But you want to know where it all started? We all started as a minority. Every person in this room was a minority. And I'm not talking about race. I'm talking about your love for the word of God. But when you adhere to the word of God, that minority starts to become the majority. Are you feeling me? Yeah. Now, do your best not to discard the majority or the culture that God is creating around you to suit your own deceptive pride. It's so easy to be like, man, I got this new revelation and I know nobody else knows it yet when it's not based on the word of God. And you feel like a John the Baptist minority when in fact, no, you're just being rebellious and deceptive. You're deceived. Whether minority or majority doesn't matter. We are talking about the word of God and that is central to us. Y'all got that? It is all about the word of God. Now let's pick up in verse 19 and keep going. Uzziah. Who had a censer in his hand, ready to burn incense, became angry. While he was raging at the priest in their presence, before the incense altar in the Lord's temple, leprosy broke out on his forehead. Man, he should have been thankful. He should have been thankful that they were correcting him and that they confronted him. But what did he do? He became angry. Not just angry, he was raging at them. Come on, look. Tabernacle imagery here. You hear incense altar. You're like, yeah, I know what that is in the steps. Contextualize this. This is the place that you pray. Come on, man, I'm praying. Why are you trying to correct me? I'm praying about it, Pastor. I'm praying about it, Justin. I'm praying about it. And then rage, discontentment, and offense rage in him at the priest. But I was praying Yeah, but your prayer was not based upon the word of God and you're praying for something that God detests in a manner that he detests and it is ancillary to the mission that he's called you to. Your prayer is not going to do anything but heap condemnation on you. He was doing so well before this point, but he's conceited enough to think that he can talk to God about what he wants to talk about instead of God telling him what he wants done. This conceited, prideful behavior that showed up in his prayer life, showed up in his relationship to the priest, what was on the the inside of him, it's beginning to spill out on the outside. Now, leprosy broke out on his forehead, but I'm pretty sure it started within him. Mm -hmm. God may have sent it, but it was already present in his heart. Listen, if you're dominated by emotions, dominated by feelings... And it's showing up in your prayer life. It's showing up in your interactions with the priest. It's showing up in your interactions with your brothers. This is leprosy. It's not just the way you feel. 
it's leprosy, and it's coming out of your mouth and starting to expand and consume you. This is like Saul when he thought, you know, I'm further along. I know that the Lord said this, but I'm going to make an offering to the Lord. I'm going to communicate with him, and I'm going to talk to him about what I would like done here. Barring the fact that God had already spoken and his word had given parameters, as Justin said earlier. You know, I'm pretty sure Saul thought his situation wasn't fair. He also thought that he just couldn't do it and he needed something different. This is an awful, like, awful lot like Uzziah's interactions here. It's something that is guised in religion, guised in holy practice, but is actually leprosy that is eating him away on the inside and God chooses to expose it here. Now, Galatians 3, 1 through 2, I'm going to read this. But you've got to imagine this playing out for a second. What Judah said is what was on his inside came out to the outside. And where did it appear? Written right on his forehead. You know how many times we've seen people with their plain pet issues or the thing that is going on in their life right on their forehead and they can't seem to see it? And yet the leprosy of their pride is coming out and showing itself to everybody. It is like literally taking a Sharpie and writing your main problem on your forehead and then showing the world. That is what happens when you do this. Galatians 3, 1 through 2 says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Or in other translations it says, Who has cut in on you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Those priests are looking right at Uzziah and saying, Who's bewitched you, man? You were doing so well. You were running such a good race. Now, we're not going to get into this tonight, but what's going on in the Galatian church is that there were Judaizers appealing to this body to be more legalistic, and yet he put the blame on the Galatians. He didn't blame the Judaizers. You know what that was? It was the leprous pride inside of them to appear more godly than they already were came right out to their outside. And Paul is saying, who bewitched you? You were running a good race. Look, if you have any areas in your heart, if you have anything inside of you that wants something other than what you have received, they will show up on the outside. If you have any areas in your heart where you're just like, man, I want to be further along. Man, I want to be further than I actually am. Man, I want to appear more godly. It will show up on your forehead and you will be the last one to see it. That is why daily we have to be checking our hearts. Satan is just waiting for pride to mix with success and deception. Satan is just watching and waiting. He doesn't have to tempt you with some crazy event like a drug dealer wanting to sell you cocaine. If Satan can just wait a little bit until you become a little bit successful, a little bit deceived in your own success, he has gotten you. And it's written on your forehead and you can't even see it. The truth is, whether you tend to lean towards your emotions or your feelings, whatever those emotions are, let's say you're emotional in the sense that you get fearful all the time. That will show up on your forehead. Maybe you're prone to just getting anger and flaring up. That will show up on your forehead. Whatever is inside you will eventually show up on your forehead. That is why we have to be constantly asking the Lord, am I being too prideful right now? Am I, am I deceived by my own definition of success? Am I deceived by what I thought you did in me last week? Lord, change me. Lord, show me the areas in my heart. Lord, I don't want to have it written on my forehead. 
Show, it where it, show me where it's written on my heart so I can carve it out. Amen. That is the dependency we need to get to. Hey, let's pick up in verse 20 as we move along. When Azariah, the chief priest, and all the other, chief, all the other priests looked at him, they saw that he had leprosy on his forehead. So they hurried him out. Indeed, he himself was eager to leave because the Lord had afflicted him. Listen, if you're not willing to listen to the correction of the priest, to the testimony of the word, God himself will render a judgment that no man can question. It may not happen in that hour, but it will come. I can attest to that through experience. I can attest to it through the word. And I would like to not attest to it in anyone in this room's life. Because God is speaking to us in advance about these things so that we might pass the test. He is not looking to kill us. He's looking for us to succeed. Consider Miriam and Aaron who didn't appreciate or love the position that God had placed them in. Though God had worked in them greatly, they weren't quite satisfied with it. Now look, we're in a Christian circle, so when you say a word like adultery, everybody in the room, ah, that's not me, I'm not going to do that, that's wicked, that's nasty. And yet, at the core of it, it's conceited, prideful, and selfish ambition that you want something more than God gave you. And it shows up in the form of another human being. We have adulterous hearts in the room where you're looking at what God has provided for you and you, in your own pride, think it's not enough. You hear the mission that God says we are on and you think, ah, I'm glad that I have that. I have it as kind of a backup. But I really would like to add this, that, or the other, or mix and match this piece of it, and I would like more than what God had provided. See, this kind of leprosy always shows up when it's untended to, uncultivated, unuprooted, like Jeremiah said, in a way that no one can hide. And that's God's doing. It's his last-ditch attempt to save you in ensuring that your own sin finds you out in a way that you can't hide from. So don't treat that as a curse. Treat it as God's last final act of mercy that you have so that you might turn. And if you don't, it will consume you. Hear me, single men, husbands, wives, children. It should never come to this. It should never come to the point where God is having to expose you. But if you refuse to listen to your leaders and your brothers, the Lord will discipline you in a way that is sevenfold more painful than the pride you fought to hold on to. Don't let fear or embarrassment drag you further. Listen, what you think is going to be hard, what you can't stand to see exposed, I promise you the judgment of God that is His mercy on your life will be sevenfold what you thought righteous actions were going to cost you. Mm. Listen, Justin and I, we don't want to just sit and preach to you tonight. We're at the nearing the end of our time allotment, we want to appeal to you as brothers in Christ. I'm not commanding you. I'm not demanding of you. I'm telling you the fruit of failing to adhere to what has been spoken over the last three services will be seven times more painful than the thing that you're refusing to do right now. So when you hear something from the pastors and you reinterpret it, you decide that doesn't apply to my home or this really is a different situation... Or you hear that God's focus is on Israel and planting into the Middle East. And you think, you know, I'm really, I think I just have a different kind of calling and I'm here for a season. I promise you, God will make it apparent to you in a way that is sevenfold more painful than adhering to it now. 
God has told you, I want you to learn how to do something, whether it be your marriage, whether it be training for the future, and you just won't put forth the discipline to learn to do it now, God will so rub that in your face that it will cause you to cry out in repentance. But I would rather you turn in repentance now. Amen. We're appealing to you as brothers in Christ. Don't make the Lord discipline you. Yeah. Listen, all of us have been in a few situations where we were the recipient of the Lord's discipline. Or perhaps you were sitting next to a spouse that would not obey you and you were bold enough to trust that God would discipline. Those are gut-wrenching situations. Yeah. And I'm telling you, as families in this house, we are headed for that if we don't turn in the humility that is necessary to cry out for God's empowerment. Look, we are appealing to you in love. Don't let this blow up in your face like it did Uzziah. To Uzziah, he's raging at the priests and not dealing with it. And God made it in such a painful way that he had to deal with it. He had, did you see where it says he was eager to leave because the Lord had afflicted him? Well, why? Because the law strictly says that a man with leprosy cannot go into the temple. If you do not learn to get it right now, God will make it to where you will never do it again where you will never have that problem again. But we would rather deal with it now. We would rather understand God and His mercy. He does this to keep us from making this mistake again. He will will blatantly rebuke you if you're not getting it so that you will not do it again. And that is mercy on you. That is the basis of why He does it is restoration. But you know what this also meant for Uzziah? And this is the saddest part. He could no longer visit the temple anymore. Because he was leprous. Because he went and and did what he did. Because he took a different station than what he already had. God, what he did to him made it to where he couldn't visit the temple. He no longer can go back to the bronze altar if he wants to. But man, we're not going to get to that point, are we? We're going to learn how to repent the first time. We're going to learn how to, if anyone comes with a correction, we're just going to automatically treat it as God speaking to us instead of going... No, I know what that brother did last week. I know the areas that he's getting wrong in his home. We're going to learn to start treating correction as God's word. Amen? Amen. Pick up in verse 21 and let's... uh, 21. King Uzziah had leprosy until the day he died. He lived in a separate house, leprous, and excluded from the temple of the Lord. Jotham, his son, had charge of the palace and governed the people of the land. Now, this is the state that don't deal with leprosy. You become separate. He had to live in a separate house from the house of God. This is the state of of those that don't deal with it. They become separate in vision. They become separate in fellowship. They become separate in their thoughts. They become separate in their emotions. This is what happens. And I want to tell you that you can still be separate and be sitting in the room. You can be sitting in the room thinking that you have unity all the while you are separate in vision, separate in fellowship, separate in your thoughts, separate in your emotions. If you find yourself constantly warring in your emotions, constantly warring in your thoughts, constantly warring in fellowship, like, man, every time I show up at the kibbutz, it just doesn't seem to be a good time for me. Well, perhaps God's trying to tell you something. And the worst part about what's happening to Uzziah here is that his sons notice it. And his son had to pick up where he let go of the plow. Man, don't make your sons have to pick up where you let go of the plow. 
Let's be fathers and mothers who get this right the first time. Amen. Let's be fathers and mothers say, who say, separate no more. I am going to be unified with what God is doing here, and I'm going to crucify the things that are making me separate. Now let's pick up in verse 22 and 23. The other events of Uzziah's reign from beginning to end are recorded by the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos. Uzziah rested with his fathers and was buried near, near them in a field for burial that belonged to the kings. For people said he had leprosy. And Jotham, his son, succeeded them as king. All right, so we're going to walk you through the stages of his life again. Regardless of what age he was, he just happened to be 16. He was a man who was desperately dependent upon the Lord and wanted someone to help walk him in holiness. The writer Ezra notes that he takes cities that have been long forgotten and he begins to rise as a kind of messianic figure, as God's instrument upon earth. And his downfall comes because pride, selfish ambition, and conceit filled his heart. He dies a leper here in verse 23. You want to know the part that's the scariest to me? that he runs his entire race and ends up just near the kings where they were buried, but not buried with them. Saints, I want you to be a king for eternity. I want you to be a righteous and holy priesthood. But nine-tenths of the way is not enough. Forty years of hard, good work will not make up for a remaining three that are filled with pride, selfish ambition, rebellion, and conceit, even if it's done with a smile on your face. A prime example of a righteous kind of life, Elder Charlie and Miss Joellen have known me since I was in diapers, and they've loved the Lord since before I was born. And in the last three years, I've seen them grow in every possible conceivable way, even faster than the years beforehand. You know why? Because they're not taking their hands off the plow. Primary ways that this showed up is an increase in humility. They were humble beforehand, but it was that much more. Stretching out into areas of prophecy and study of the scripture and Acts class teachings that they were not comfortable with that far down the road. You know why? Because they're going to finish strong. Because they're going to die with their hands on the plow doing exactly what God told them to with their love hot. The scary thing about this passage is he's one of the best kings that we're going to hear about until we get to the time of Hezekiah. The best king we've had since the death of Solomon. And he does not get buried with the kings and he does not spend eternity with the kings. He dies nine-tenths of the way, close but not close enough. Look, Ezra mentions that the other events of his reign are recorded in the book of Isaiah. Typically these things are recorded in Kings or in another location like Jasher or the Wars of the Lord. He says that the events of it are in Isaiah, which lets you know that not only did he have 81 righteous priests around him, he also had prophets around him the entire time. Praise God for such a scenario and what a shame for such a wretched outcome. These chapters that we're discussing are Isaiah 1 through 5. They co-witness. They're running at the same time frame as Uzziah's life. The first five chapters of Isaiah. Wouldn't be a bad idea for you Bible students to read the first five chapters of Isaiah because from here on out, everything that we study will be also taking place in the prophets. Justin's going to read to us a section of Isaiah to give you an idea of what the climate in Israel was like 
during this time frame. Look, the reason why we're doing this and pointing this out to you is I've heard many people in this room say, you know, Isaiah is one of the hardest books in the Bible to understand. And I've been one of them that, that has said it. But truthfully, it's not if you understand when it was written and who was alive. It says it in Isaiah 1.1. These are the prophecies recorded by Isaiah during the reigns of Uzziah, all these men. And you can read in Isaiah 6 where it says, In the year that Uzziah died, I saw a vision. So you know that chapters 1 through 5 are during that reign. And it gives you clarity on understanding the prophets, and specifically Isaiah, the major prophet. But I'm going to read to you just a, just a brief portion of Isaiah so you can kind of see some of the things you've been reading that we all like to make sodes about and stuff like that, and I get it, really actually do have some founding in what's happening in Isaiah's history. This is Isaiah 1.10 through 13. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now, the verse before that, he had just called Israel and Judah like Sodom and Gomorrah. So when he's saying that, he's talking about Israel and Judah. Verse 11, the multitudes of your sacrifice, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and the lambs of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you? This trampling of my courts. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Now look, this is not just a passage that we hand select to talk to people about their convictions in the Lord and say, God doesn't want that from you. This is what was going on in Uzziah's time. And you can see it clearer now than you have before, right? Yes. Look, what's happening in this time in Isaiah's life is he's seeing Israel do the same thing that their king did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They are coming and trampling his courts because that's what their king did. Wow. They are coming and trying to offer sacrifices out of prideful deceit like their king did. Man, it's a sad thing to be so leprous in pride that your sacrifices are meaningless and unwanted by God. It is possible to be leprous in pride like these people were, that you're trying to sacrifice something here, but God doesn't want it because you're led by the wrong motive. This is how you can end your life near kings, near the fire, near the move of God, and not be a king. Not be a man on fire and not be the move of God. This is how that happens by pride coming in. And you want to suppress that pride and not let anyone see it. Well, I've got to sacrifice something. And yet God knows the motive. Look, that's pretty painful to hear. And we're preaching to you right out of what the Lord crucified us. But we want to give you a solution to this. Would you like to know that there is a solution to heal leprosy in your life? Yes. We're going to walk through a few scriptures as we end. And this is the healing of leprosy in you. In the end, was their prosperity particularly helpful for their spiritual condition? No, not really. Was the multitude of their offerings and their sacrifices particularly helpful for their condition? No. Was the quantity of their incense or their prayer particularly helpful for their condition? It's almost as if God wants leprosy to actually be eradicated. And no amount of prayer while you're disunified as a 
husband and wife, no amount of prayer while you're disunified as a body will change the situation until you change your heart and your actions. So the prayer that we want is the kind of prayer that removes the leprous condition that we have so that our prayers might actually be heard before the living God. I'm going to ask Pastor Matthew to help us with this. We have three verses, three sections. It's well worth knowing the solution to hang on for another, like, ten minutes. Pastor Matthew, if you would get Leviticus 14... 13 through 17, and feel free to stand with us we're on, on our way out. Amen. Nick, would you get 2 Peter 2, 7 through 12, Erigina? Yes. And then who wants to get the last one? <laughs> Abambola, from the back, if you get Revelation 1, 5 through 10. Leviticus 14.13 He is to slaughter the lamb in the holy place where the sin offering and the burnt offering are slaughtered. Like the sin offering, the guilt offering belongs to the priest. It is most holy. The priest is to take some of the blood of the guilt offering and put it on the lobe of the right ear of the one to be cleansed, on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe on his right foot. The priest shall then take some of the log of oil, pour it in the palm of his own left hand, and dip his right forefinger into the oil in his palm, and with his finger sprinkle some of it before the Lord seven times. The priest is to put some of the oil remaining in his palm on the lobe of the right ear of the one to be cleansed, on the lobe of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot, on top of the blood of the guilt offering. Now, this is the cure for a leper. And I want you to pick up a few things here. Priests are not supposed to be around lepers. They're not supposed to touch them. They're not supposed to be in the same vicinity as a leper. So what makes this work? Well, the leper is wanting to be cleansed. A priest can't be around a leper that does not want to be cleansed. But one that does want to be cleansed, a priest can be around. And he can help to anoint him. And what that process looks like is there is a lamb that is slaughtered, just like a sin offering. The leper has to bring a sin offering, a burnt offering, and a guilt offering to the priest. He has to acknowledge his sin. He has to acknowledge his guilt. He has to bring an innocent animal to be slaughtered for his own problem. And then, right on top of the blood, the oil goes on the right ear. Right on top of the blood that's applied to the right thumb gets oil placed on it. Then the blood and oil get placed on the right big toe. That is your hearing, your thoughts, and your walking. Your hearing, your thoughts must be renewed by a bloody offering and anointed to hear what God hears. Your work, your hands, your thumb must be renewed by a bloody offering and anointed to do what God directs. Your walk, your movement, your right big toe must be renewed by a bloody offering and anointed to go and stand exactly where God placed you. And guess what? This is the same process that you do to anoint a priest. Yes. This is how lepers become courageous, chayil, valiant priests, is they have their hearing changed by the blood and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. 
They come and cry out and they say, God, change my hearing because I've been hearing the wrong things. They say, God, come change my hands because my works have been wrong and I want them to be changed. They say, God, come change my walk because I've been walking wrongly. You cannot become a priest and cure your leprosy unless you're willing to repent in those three areas of your life. Two additional things to pick up. Somebody say blood, blood. then oil. Then oil. Oh, I have the blood of Jesus. Yeah, you have the blood of Jesus and you have to pay a bloody sacrifice to be anointed. You yeah. must share in him the sacrifice and what is lacking in his suffering. You don't just get to be anointed out of your problem. You don't just get to be anointed out of your rebellious, wicked thoughts or your lazy, apathetic attitude towards what God has called you to accomplish. You have to pay the cost, and God will also anoint you in it. Yes. But you don't get oil, then blood. With that in mind, it's a good word. I'm of the. Uh, listen, I could care less for an altar response. I could care less for. Oh, that was an amazing word, or it was a horrible word. I know it's what the Lord is speaking right now. There are guilt offerings that need to be offered in this room, an actual recognition of the fact that you have had a leprous condition, and it must change now. And you don't just get to pray at the altar and ask God to anoint you out of it. You pay the cost, and then he will anoint you out Amen. of it. So hiding and waiting for him to fix your problems, and then saying, I'll put in the effort, then I'll put in the sacrifice, is not going to work. To that note, 1 Peter 2, 7 through 12. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Saints, we have two categories here. And we are fighting for our actions and our way of life to demonstrate genuine belief that this is precious, Amen. what he has given us. Yes. Man may reject that stone. But he has become our capstone. Wow. I don't care what the carnal church thinks. I don't care what the world around us thinks. He is our capstone. Yeah. Keep reading. And a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. <clears throat> it's almost as if Peter understood. <clears throat> One moment. The prescription for becoming a priesthood called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. I want every man in this room to have the genuine anointing of a priest. We tell you you're the priest of your home because you are. It's your responsibility. It's your function. But to actually walk in the anointing of the priest, to actually walk through the tabernacle and be near the holy presence of God and carry his weight with you everywhere that you go, we need darkness to be removed from the room. We must come out of it. It's time for us to recognize the areas that have been deceitfully, subtly, tearing us apart and taking us from the actual royal priesthood that we've been called to operate in. Amen. Keep reading in verse 10, 11, and 12. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you, as aliens and strangers in the world, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. 
Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. I'm not sure much commentary is necessary before we move to Revelation. Sinful desires that war against your soul. And we're not talking about the ones that are obvious. We're talking about the ones that for the last two hours we've been discussing that are warring against your soul. Your soul being in Christ. You standing and living such a good life that the pagans are ashamed to accuse you of doing something that is wrong. The unfortunate reality is that often our actions give the pagans genuine reason to accuse us of doing wrong. But when we take our stand as the priests that have had genuine blood and oil applied to us, then we're going to see good deeds that glorify God on the day He visits us. I'm waiting for the return of Christ, and I am working as His priest until that very day. And it just might be that the days are going darker a little faster than we thought, and we're getting closer where the hour is going to close, when night is coming and no man can work. Who has Revelation 1, 5? Saints, we don't have time to go into the 15 different passages in the prophets that are being discussed here. But I can tell you that they relate to being wholly His, to being exactly where He placed you, being on the mission that He has called you to, during the darkest days that exist, and you seeing Him coming on the clouds. John was a man who said, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. Saints, I want to tell you that brotherhood, companionship, suffering, the kingdom of God, and patient endurance are your inheritance in Christ. Amen. Your inheritance is coming upon you faster than you may realize. The days are coming when you must be able to stand and know that you're exactly where God has called you to be, doing what He's called you to be, and there is not one thing left undone because your time is short. Come on. Whether it's short because you choose to prove yourself as chaff, or because God's window to accomplish the work comes to an end. Our time is short, and there is no time for delay. 
He was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. An old man on an island suffering for doing exactly what God had told him to do, content in every way with what God had given him. And you know what? He was the man who received the revelation. Come on. He was the man who saw these things put together. Come on. Saints, you want to see Christ revealed. You want God's revelation in your home and in your family. Well, you must pay the same cost that John did. He didn't trade in his calling for another one. He didn't put his family on the back burner until he felt like getting around to issues. He didn't look at the things that were hard that God had called him to and shrink back from them. He literally at every turn faced them head on as long as it took, as often as it took, and this man didn't fail nine-tenths of the way down the road. Come on. He finished strong. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. There's an expectation for suffering, for contention, for genuine Christ-like behavior in the face of persecution that is growing in the one association and must grow in this room. Amen. God is able to heal our leprosy. We are a kingdom of priests in our calling and our destination. The question is, among those that were called, who will make up his priesthood? And I believe that he's calling men in this room, but you must make your election sure by behaving like a priest in this house. That kind of behavior will carry you all the way through. So, here's where I'd like for us to start. Going through this story, you see the beginnings of a humble king that's dependent. God grants him success. Success gets to his head. Pride puffs him up. Eventually leads to a leprous forehead. When we get things wrong, we usually get them wrong because we bypass the first step. That first step, that is humility. That first step that gains a, an understanding between us and where we are and where God is. You notice that whenever these guys are, are going through the progression of this king running through the tabernacle, what he bypasses? Yeah. What's the yeah. first thing that he goes through in order to get to it's the altar? It's, 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 it's a praise. Do you think he's stopping to contemplate the greatness of God and the disparity between him and the greatness that's being revealed to no. him? No. That's the first step that he makes. That then throws every other step off course. So how is that real for you and me? If you find yourself rushing to just get to what you want in the tabernacle and end up not getting what you want, it's because you're missing the very first step. I find myself, I want to hurry up and run to the blood because I know it's what makes me holy. I want to run to the lampstand because I'm walking around in darkness. And I need some revelation. I need some light. It's like, yeah, 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 God. I got all that. This is what you need to give me. He's like, yeah, 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 yeah. You're an idiot. Go back to step one. You're being stubborn. You're being prideful. And the reality of this story is that the end result of pride is just as much true for us as it was for him. That you can have a life that ends in a leprous state, not having fully completed the call from which God ordained, set you apart, blood and oiled you in the first place. You guys know very well there's a scripture that I love. It's very close to where the guys quoted it in this lesson. 
still being discipled. Yes. <laughs> You're furthering the revelation is what it is. I couldn't help but hear whenever we're talking about blood and oil that I'm reflecting on the very scripture that defines uh, my mezuzah and what I do, but also how we live. And that is we're to be living sacrifices holy and pleasing. Our holiness comes from the blood. It is what sanctifies us, sets us apart, so we can stand rightly before God. The oil, the oil that's applied on us is what makes us pleasing to God. Amen. Blood first, then oil. If you're progressing through the tabernacle, you go through the gates of praise, you come to the altar, right? That's where the blood would be shed, and you are made holy. You would then progress to the labor, and then the next step would be the menorah. What is a menorah used to illuminate itself with? Oil. Oil. Blood first, then oil. So I want you to find encouragement and hope. Encouragement and hope that you don't have to stay in a prideful and leprous state. I'm sure God's revealing this to you. Things are hitting your heart, striking your cord, stepping on your toes. And it should do that. So that you see that you actually need a cure. Because there is one. So here's what I would like for me and Pastor Wade to do. Is that we're going to go back to step one. We're going to go through the tabernacle and begin at the gates of praise. We're going to get a right perspective of God revealing who he is to us now. So that gives us right directive of how we engage who he is through the remainder of the tabernacle. Mm -hmm. I know for many of you, this will be really good practice as a corporate body that you will implement in your own personal life. It'll strengthen. It'll cure your condition. So let's all stand to our feet and we'll begin. (laughs) So as we pray, ask the Lord to reveal who he is to you. Don't move on until that happens. If you're having trouble, come down to the altar. You, you, you get this? As we're engaging him, engage him where you are. If you're having trouble, something's just not breaking free, then come down to the altar and ask for help. So as we begin to pray... Expect the cure to be applied. Mighty King, we worship and praise you for the greatness of who you are. You're the one who purifies, who sanctifies kings, priests, prophets, and his people. Your desire is to obtain the obedience of the nations and the obedience of us. Lord, we thank you for being the God who cleanses leprosy. Being the God who purges and purifies us of pride. Lord, we ask, Lord, reveal to us the character, the body of work, the name of who you are. That we may rightly begin at the first step of engaging who you are. And find ourselves progressing toward you as you have predetermined. And that we may be pleasing and holy in your sight. So, Rabasunikanushi, Missunikanku, 